You want to count down or? Uh, yeah, sure. Five, four, three, two. Hello and welcome to Thinking Religion. I'm Thomas Whitley. And I'm Sam Harrelson. Thomas, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great today, <laughs> Sam. Our, uh, our pre-shows are basically just... They're, they're terrible. I was feeling good. You know, I was coming out of it. Yeah, and then coming, and coming then you into- called me, and it was just Debbie Downer. You're a buzzkill. Um, yeah. Did you know, Thomas, that Americans spend $70 billion on lotteries? And that was in 2014. Didn't know that. Americans in 43 states where lotteries are illegal. Sorry, it's my puppies. Uh, spent $70 billion on lotto games in 2014. That's more than Americans spend in all 50 states on sports tickets, books, video games, movie tickets, and any any type of music sales. All combined. Sports tickets, books, games, movies, music, all combined is about $63 billion. A lot of tickets, $70 billion. That's about $200 per person per state. And there's only 43 states where it's legal. And in some states, like Rhode Island, people spend $800 per citizen. For South Dakota, it's like $700. And Massachusetts, West Virginia, Delaware, those are all six to $700 per person. Wow. That's, isn't that, isn't that that's insane? insane. $70 billion. And we, we wonder why we have politicians who, you know, toy with us and we have things like the Panama Papers come out and we realize, oh, you know, maybe our government is working for us. Yeah. I don't know. Just want to throw that out there for our, our, our listeners to ponder over. But hey, it's for education. <laughs> maybe in Georgia. I mean, the Hope Scholarship is okay in Georgia, I think. But at least in South Carolina, it's it's ridiculously bad. And the money gets reapportioned for all sorts of things. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's right. But they sell it as like, hey, this is good because all the funds are going to go to like educate your kids, except usually all the funds are not going to educate your kids. And like, so if people have clearly, you know, I, I'm not going to call it disposable income because I, I know a lot of people spend money on lottery tickets, hoping to like make it big when they should be spending money on groceries. But, you know, so, so say you cut them half to $35 billion. Think about what we could do for education with $35 billion, if all we did was, you know, minimally increase taxes and put that toward education. Like we'd actually make some systemic changes then. But we're taxing the poor here to pay for it. Right, you know, that's what it class, is. Basically. Right. right, so this this article in the Atlantic, linked down in the show notes says, it's the poor who, who are really losing the poorest third of households by half of all lottery tickets, according to Duke, um, a study that was done in the 80s, in part because lotteries are advertised most aggressively in poor neighborhoods. North Carolina report from NC Policy Watch found that people living in the poorest counties buy the most tickets. Of course, out of the 20 counties with the poverty rates of higher than 20% in North Carolina, 18 of those counties had lottery sales topping the statewide average of $200 per per adult. And the the advertising in those counties is, uh, you know, much more intense. Because, you know, when you're stuck with huge credit card debt and you're on snap and uh you know things look pretty bleak you you know yeah buck i can i can spend two three dollars a week who knows maybe i can uh hit it big anyway i'm very anti-lotto but that's my own (laughs) my own personal politics i just want to throw that out there have you seen facebook live uh yeah a little bit i mean i've seen it yeah and i yeah it was big with zuckerman his thing but I've not played around with it at all. <laughs> all right. So there's a link in the show notes again. Uh, or if you just go to facebook.com slash live map, it'll blow your mind. And you can see in real time where people are uh, pot- or, or broadcasting from or, or you know Facebook living from. I don't think there's a verb for that yet. Videoing from. And it's uh, it's pretty insane. So uh, just today I was showing Mariana, my wife, this and we were watching a person in Iraq live stream. And then she was like, oh, there are people in Germany? And I was like, yeah, of course. So we zoomed over to Germany and we were watching random people in Germany just kind of sitting there talking. 
And yeah, there's only 10 or 15 people watching them, but you know, you can chat, you can interact if you want, but there's just that element of being able to tap into some place outside of your own periphery and experience that just for a minute. And there have been other solutions like, you know, Periscope and Meerkat and um, trying to think of other things, but you know, there's lots of other sort of live streaming options, but none with Facebook's kind of general yeah, and built in user pull base. to it. So, yeah. So I think this is going to be really interesting. I think, you know, I, I, as long as it doesn't devolve into something that it, it could easily devolve into because of the, <laughs> because of internet, um, I think it could be really a fascinating tool to watch. You know, maybe the real names idea of Facebook, you know, we'll kind of keep some of that in check. So it doesn't become, uh, what, what oh was yeah, chat roulette. chat roulette was that the <laughs> the service? Yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was pretty interesting. So tomorrow on Friday, I'm driving down to glorious Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Um, <laughs> I say that tongue in cheek. I grew up near there, so I can say that. Uh, driving down there to do a social media uh, talk for I think like two hours for the uh, Cooperative Baptist South Carolina annual conference. Um, they invited me to come down and talk about ex acceptable social media usage for churches and for staff and for, you know, the youth minister or for congregants. And, you know, where is that, where are those lines and what should, you know, churches and, and people be aware of. And uh, I don't know, I was just thinking about things like Facebook Live and, and just the idea of how, you know, things like Twitter and Facebook really have changed so much of what we consider yeah. participatory culture in, in our country, you know, like when I watch a baseball game now, you know, and, and even if I'm watching my iPad, I need my phone out because I want to check Twitter and see what the reporters are saying. You know, that, that second screen kind of an idea, um, even for something as mundane as, as, you know, major league baseball game, it just, um, yeah, but this is still like really not it, it's on kind of in church culture. Right, right, and that's the thing. That's that's what I was I was going through because I, you know, I I speak a good deal to things like Kiwanis groups and Chamber of Commerce groups and business groups, and um, I'm very comfortable doing that because I kind of know my intended audience. When you go into something like a church group, or you know, in this case, a group of pastors or people from the church who really care about something like CBF South Carolina, um, you. It's it's harder to do because you don't necessarily know the intended audience's range of <laughs> skills or awareness or engagement or yeah you know, it's it's kind of like okay if I go into the Kiwanis Club I know what I can say because I yeah I kind of have an idea of what a you know typical Kiwanis Club in the South looks like or you know the, the Chamber of Commerce type thing or if I'm going into a bank I know what I'm I'm getting into um, so that's that's been the hard thing with this because I have. Yeah, I have some idea, but still, it's you don't want to walk into a room of fifty people and all of a sudden it's uh, you know a a situation where you expected one level of competency or you you expected them not to know anything and and that's not the case, right? So, well, you know, but they're gonna have to they're gonna have to do it because that's the way to get the millennials in the church. <sighs> <laughs> well, for in, in any tips that you would you would give me for. Uh, uh, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, that's that's definitely tough. I think. I mean, the the struggle, kind of constant struggle, that I've experienced that churches have is, um, and I mean, you and I have been dealing with this for years now with churches is they only want it to be like a press release. Like that's the only thing that they want their um, social media to be used for. Cause they're like scared of people hijacking it or whatever. Um, which like says like, because generally it's kind of like, you know, white male authoritarians that are in charge of these churches too. So <laughs> that's kind of how they run their lives in general. They're scared of like letting other people have any kind of semblance of control. Um, hey, I yeah. resemble that remark. So I think that's, you know, that's obviously difficult is kind of getting people to change their concern of, how your church relates to your congregation and to the outside world. 
but this is also related to like websites and stuff and that churches think websites should like, they only think about themselves and they only think about them as the users and they don't ever think about visitors. And so they designed church websites for, or this is how they pushed for them to be designed, right? For them. So like, oh, I want to be able to access this. So I'm going to make that like really important. Whereas, you know, all the relevant information for visitors, if it's even on the site, is usually really difficult to find. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any tips necessarily because I think part of what happened is a complete change in kind of worldview as far as this is concerned. Yeah, that's so interesting. So, uh, do you remember what, what like 10 years ago, 2000 or maybe 2007, 2008, we spoke to a religious group about social media stuff. We did like a Skype call. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. we we're talking about the same thing then. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm trying to win you over to the marketing consulting world. Cause even back then you were, <laughs> you were good at, it. uh, yeah. And, and it, it's, it's fascinating to me because I, I see, I'm trying to use that word instead of interesting. Uh, it, it's fascinating to me because, we work with so many uh, churches, you know, with, the, with our agency, and that's always the big conversation at the beginning during the exploratory phase is, look, you know, what is this website for? Is it, is it kind of your digital front door or is it an intranet for you and your congregants? Is it a place for people to go on and do online giving? Um, you know, do you, do you want to put <laughs> like your member directory up there? Like, or is this a, right. yeah, or is this kind of, um, showing off your experience, right? So if you go to any of the sort of the big popular, not mega churches, but you know, the Sean Jesus Sean type churches with drums and guitars and they <laughs> shine Jesus shine churches, you know, yeah, he came from heaven yeah. to earth to show the way from the cross to the grave, my hand to say, uh, it's a full screen picture of either people in the, in the audience as it is, uh, you know, waving their hands, with kind of a, a, a sans serif font over the front, but it, you know, it's this full screen splash picture. And then you, you scroll up and it does the, the fancy, uh, Ajaxy, um, stuff where, you know, you, you, you kind of have these transitions and then it talks about your, your, uh, maybe a, a little small brief thing about who you are. And then it talks about your worship times and you can see the podcast or you can see the live stream or, you know, whatever. And, I just wonder how useful those types of church websites are for people who have been raised in a advertising age, right? So like me and you, I mean, we're not old, but we're not of that. We're not millennials um, or I'm not, maybe you are. We're, I think I <laughs> am not. technically. Yeah, I think you are. You and Mariana. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm definitely not, but we were, we had ads, but they weren't everywhere, you know, kind of in this minority report sense that they are now in terms of everything you consume, whether it's a web page or whether it's a, you know, your email, uh, there's constantly the stream of advertising and marketing. You know, if you go on Facebook or if you go on Snapchat or if you go on Facebook live, you know, whatever, there's, there's this constant sort of stream of, uh, you know, blatant advertising or content advertising or some, some type of ads. And, we become oblivious to it in, in one way, but also it becomes a part of the, the text and the context of what we're looking at and what we're doing. But most of the ministers and most of the people designing these websites, most of the, most of the financial committees that are approving these websites aren't in that generation that grew up with that constant stream of advertising. And I don't know. I just think there's a, a big disconnect there because we, we want to, you know, know we got to attract the young people, even if it's a, an right. older church, you know, quote unquote. Um, and, and I see these websites and I just think, okay, what do you, you know, stop trying to sell people Coke. Yeah. You know, like you don't need to sell people sugar water here. Like just make a beautiful, plain, easy to read site that they can bring up on their mobile and say, Hey, we're, we're a Southern Baptist church. And we think that men are superior to women. And we think that, uh, gays are going to hell and, you know, boom, shakalaka. There you go. Yeah. Right. If I mean, let's put it you, out there. Then <laughs> if you're gonna be yeah. Um, <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I see what you're saying on on that 
side, but then on the other side, sites that are clearly only designed for members, right? And so there are certain things you look for, like if you're going to say, I'm going to go visit a church. Uh, one, it has to have a website, which still surprisingly, uh, a number of churches don't have websites. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Two, it needs to have like the address, some kind of directions, um, <laughs> right. it needs which to have, surprisingly like, a lot don't, <laughs> you know, a phone or something like that. It needs to have like service times. It needs to have, you know, what's going on for like, what do you do with your kids? If you have kids, like all these things, like just things that I think are insanely basic that so many websites, church websites just don't have because they don't think about it because they are, they're already in the know, you know? Um, so, you know, I, I think there's kind of two extremes there that, you know, it'd be nice to find kind of a little bit of a, a happy medium. Yeah. Exactly. But I mean, that does, that does get at this larger question, right? This conversation that's kind of ongoing, which you and I are a little tired of, but I don't think it's a bad conversation to have. And it is this question of, like, you know, millennials and the church and kind of advertising and, and should you be doing things specifically to try to get millennials or what? So I don't know. Do you want to? Well, I mean, so that's, it's been a hot topic, right? And, and yeah. at least in my world of church marketing and, and, uh, you know, nonprofit marketing and, and working with those types of groups on trying to clarify their message and trying to get it out there in the right spots. And whether it's Rachel Held Evans, she has a new book. Uh, let me searching for Sunday, on, searching for Sunday. Um, yeah. And, and there's a, a link down in the show notes to an, uh, an article in the Atlantic. And the title is, is Christianity dark enough for millennials? And it, yeah. based on this article that I read, um, Evans seems to be mm-hmm. saying, you know, the millennials, uh, generalizing, uh, have been advertised to enough, whatever, but they want something a little more substantial than the shine Jesus shine movement. And she said, the reason millennials are leaving uh, the church are more complex than a lack of cool. Uh, we've, we've been advertised to our entire lives. We can smell BS from a mile away. So if you're trying to sell us a product, we can tell that, which is what I also tell churches, but yeah. So, okay. But here's my thought on that. Um, okay. So my, my, my first the first thing I should say, the preface that I should offer here is that I really, really dislike these types of generalizations. Millennials this, millennials that, right? There's another piece that we, you know, have looked at um, that's like, here's how to like minister to millennials. And it's just these insane overgeneralizations based on the year you happen to be born. And yes, I understand like growing up with certain types of technology, influence things. So, and I understand all that and I'm not trying to discount that. Um, but we'll have the same experience. And also a lot of these kind of, here's who millennials are, um, tends to look very white as well. Um, and kind of just forget or just ignore kind of these huge other segments of the population. So there's that. So I'm not a fan at all of even talking about kind of how do we get millennials and young people and um, you got to do this, you got to do that. And I think that I like what Rachel is saying here on the one hand and that she's saying like her, her ultimate point is like, just be you. Like, and I'm just not that, she's just not that worried about like whether a bunch of people come or whatever. She's like, just do your thing and don't try to do this or to um, market yourself to a certain segment. But there's also this idea where she's kind of playing into what she doesn't like and these generalizations about millennials, right? Well, we've been advertised to our whole lives so we can smell BS. We're all about authenticity. And I'm just not sure that's true. That like millennials are any better at smelling advertising or BS than any people. I think everybody knows when they're being advertised to. And also judging by the numbers, um, and like the anecdotes that I see, millennials, I mean, a lot of millennials don't have a problem being advertised to and completely giving into it, right? That's why we have this whole thing about, you know, basic, like, you know, somebody that's basic, right? She's a basic white girl. She has like her nice purse and her Starbucks and whatever and her, you know, yoga pants on that aren't actually pants, they're tights, right? Um, like no problem kind of, yeah, I'm being advertised to and that's fine. I like it. 
You know, right? There's a reason that the churches that are growing do tend to be these evangelical churches that, you know, have guys wearing skinny jeans and have, you know, beautiful stage, you know, writing and singing their own music and have smoke machines and, you know, a concert every week. Like we, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, you're just being advertised to and they're just kind of like trying to package this particular product real pretty for you. Well, a lot of people like that, you know. Um, so it also kind of strikes me a little bit as like the people who like they're always a little bit more indie than you, right? Like whatever you like, they don't like, it's just too popular. So I don't like it. Well, like if millions of people like something, there's probably a reason why they like it, right? It's not because they're all, you know, sheeple that have no brain to think for themselves and they just don't understand what good music is or good art or what, you know, clothes you should be wearing. Um, so I don't know. I just, I don't like the types in general. And I think she's engaging in that. And this is also one I just don't think is true. Like it's probably true for a few people that happen to fall into this millennial range but i just don't think it's true for everybody that was born between whatever these x years are that we're defining millennials as well yeah i think about it this way you know like someone who's 20 today was born in what 1996 or someone who's 22 was born in 1994 and they grew up in a world where they weren't alive when kurt cobain was alive and to me that's weird (laughs) you know or my my daughter was born in 2007 and that's the same year as the iphone Right. And my other daughter was 2010 and that was the same year as the iPad. And then I've got a four month old and he was born the same year as, you know, things like VR really started coming along. So they're, they're growing up in these worlds just like you and I did, where things like personal computers weren't seen as crazy, you know, but my parents, right. My parents were very forward thinking in some ways because I, you know, I had a computer at a very early age and I learned to take it apart and play with it and build it. And, you know, I learned about RAM and processors and, and, and bits and bytes. And I, I'm not arguing with you, but I, I think that there are worldviews. Like, like when someone gives you a new MacBook, like the, the 2015 MacBook, it has one port and that's a USB uh, three uh, or type C port. And there's no USB port per se that you can plug a flash drive in. There's no DVD drive. There's no other way to get stuff into it. Right. Because whoever's buying that laptop for 1200 bucks is probably getting their games from the app store. Cause they probably have an iPhone and they're probably downloading their documents from iCloud or either something like Google drive or Dropbox or whatever. Um, and they're doing things in a different way than you and I did it. They're, they're listening to music from Spotify or Apple music or God forbid, something like title. And <laughs> which I don't think anyone uses even Kanye. Uh, but they're, they're watching movies on Netflix. So they're watching movies on these streaming services and you and I didn't grow up that way. And I love Plex and I love trying to figure out how to, you know, make copies so that I have copies of all my music. Right. Because that means something to me because I grew up in the time when there were, then when there, you know, were CDs, but for someone who's 20 or 22 today, they were in preschool at the height of the CD economy. And that quickly started dropping in 1998, 1999. So this idea of us looking at things in the same way as far as consumption and creation and advertising, it, you know, it doesn't compute with someone who's, you know, dramatically 20 or 30 years younger than we are. Right. Yeah. No. And I, I agree with that. I mean, and so I think the, like the experiences you have and kind of what's going on around you certainly do shape you. But like the quite like the idea of being able to like smell out advertising better than other generations to me it has nothing to do with when you grew up. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, because you, you know, know, you look at something like the Kardashians or something like Instagram. I mean, Instagram is is an advertising medium, right? You know, and and Snapchat to a certain extent. It, you you f- have the discovery part of Snapchat, which is actually where I spend more time than I do communicating with people who I know, because it's fascinating to see what. Comedy Central or what's the other one I, I like to look at? Like what ESPN's doing with Snapchat compared to what they're doing on Facebook or what they're doing on Twitter. Um, or, you know, even Twitter now with, with kind of the algorithmic stuff. Uh, it just, I, yeah, I, I agree. I don't think they're better at smelling, smelling out advertising. But 
it, it's that concept of there's there's an article in Baptist News Global um, by Wesley Spears Newsom, yeah. and it's six yeah. six essentials for churches engaging millennials. And the the headlines are number one, understand their economics. Number two, embrace their suspicions of institutions. Number three, reject the myths about millennials. Go digital. Again, number five, do what you do and do it well, which is a Bob Dylan lyric. Uh, number six, half hard conversations, but don't assume you're always right. And it, yeah, those are great, but that applies to right, everyone. Exactly. No one. And then like when these myths, so it's like reject the myths about millennials, but the five other things I have are myths about millennials, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this list. And so that's, that's, that's part of my thing too. Well, and then, so this is when you hear a lot, right? There's, you know, the millennials are suspicious of institutions. I mean, no, not really. Right. I mean, the people that are most angry at government right now are not young people generally, right? There are plenty of young people that are angry about government. But when we break it out demographically, it's people that like used to have factories and don't anymore. Right. So why, why are we now talking about their generation as being really suspicious of institutions? And the other thing is that what's not recognized in concepts like this is that or in lists like this is that the concept of things like institution has changed. Right. So you're thinking government, church, you know, things like that. These are institutions and people don't like them and young people really don't. Them. Uh, well, there's plenty of young people that plenty of millennials that have no problem with the government or the church. Right. So these just, again, sweeping generalizations. But what we're also not recognizing are other other institutions, say Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. Right. The Kardashians. These are institutions kind of in and of themselves that people in this age group. Right. And so just because it's not like a brick and mortar thing doesn't mean it's not an institution. Right. And so they're not somehow inherently more suspicious of institutions because they possibly maybe though the data is still out on this don't like some of the institutions that i like right i mean right right that's right exactly yeah so they have different brand names but it's just like we did you know and you had to have a jansport backpack and you had to have a well, new I mean, pair of, of so Reebok the, or, you know, the whole you know, one shoes quote unquote political revolution of bernie sanders which is not actually happening but um <laughs> oh, yeah maybe that's another show <laughs> I'm not anti-Bernie, but look, if you look at this, right, but this is, I think, a great example. So you have Bernie Sanders and by all accounts, uh, a ton of young people, college age students and, you know, young adults, post-college age, um, people that have just graduated that are coming out and supporting Bernie Sanders. They have. And that you can't say about them that they distrust institutions. They don't like some of our current institutions, but they don't distrust institutions in general because what they want is more government, more oversight, right? Things like that. They want, you know, a, a, a better welfare system. They want more health care for more people, right? Run for, funneled through the work of the government. Now, maybe they don't like how things are being done right now, and they're not big fans of the Democratic Party right now or the Republican Party, but it's not because they distrust institutions. It's because they don't like some institutions, and they want to put other institutions in charge, or they want to change the institutions we have. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the same thing can be said about you know any generation or whatever. Right, exactly. And that's why I think all this talk is just ridiculous. <laughs> well, I, you know... It, Every generation thinks it's the best and the one following it is lazy and, and slack. I mean, right. you know, since we've come up with this stupid idea of, of categorizing people by their the decade they were born in. Um, I read a thing the other day about I generation, which is evidently the name given to the generation after the millennials. So people who were born in 2005, I think, and beyond or 2004 or something. And, uh, you know, and, and I, I'm thinking, OK, they're 10 years old, but uh it was a marketing piece and it, they were explaining how I generation is going to be a generation that rejects the millennials kind of slackiness. And they're going to say, you got all these participatory trophies and everything was handed to you and you squandered it. And, uh, you, you went back to live with your parents and we're going to take up the slack for that. And we're going to become the next great generation. <laughs> they're 10 years old, Yeah, <laughs> you know? So I'm thinking of my kids and they have no idea what any of that means. No. Um, and sure they might look at, I mean, so we look at the what baby boomers, I guess, or what's, I guess I'm, I'm Gen X or Gen Y or something. 
um you know so i look at 50 year olds and uh yeah i've got some i've got some uh issues with people like that who came along at a very good time to be alive in the in the united states and i think okay my children are going to have a harder time having success because of the things that you did in your generation you know two generations ahead of them um but I don't know. I don't know. It's it's there's nowhere really to go with that, is there? It's all it's all marketing. Right. Yes. The, the whole generational right. millennial the greatest generation and all that stuff. Oh, God. Don't get me started. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. Anyway. Um. <laughs> mm. Mm. But I do. I do. I will say this about Rachel Hall Evans. Like, I do fundamentally like her main point, which is like, just don't worry about it. Like people are people figure out who is a yeah, church exactly. or, or whatever exactly. and just do your thing. And then whatever happens, happens. I'm on board with that. That's, that's fantastic. And that's the way it should be. Um, you know, whether you're a church or a business or whatever, like stop worrying about trying to segment down to that level. Um, you know, and, and the current trajectory of Madison Avenue advertising and marketing is so data driven that yep. it's hard not to do that. So even, I mean, even us, you know, we work with, I mean, we're not working with, you know, Madison Avenue clients, but, you know, we have some larger clients and a lot of what we do in, in some cases has total reliance on data from things like, you know, Google Analytics or whatever. Um, and it's heartbreaking sometimes when you see someone say, well, I really feel this way, but I'm going to have to say that we should use this creative because, you know, that's what the data shows that people want to see on Facebook. And you know, it's ugly, it's algorithmic, it's not creative, <laughs> right? Um, and and you, you watch shows like Mad Men and you think, oh gosh, there was this great time in American history where uh, creative people were allowed into the advertising world and, and you could come up with, you know, great ads for smoking to get young people addicted to cancer sticks. Um, <laughs> Wasn't it a great time to be alive? What <laughs> <laughs> a time, uh, you know, and yeah. And, and now those things are, are made so deliberately, but it goes back to what we were talking about, I guess, last podcast. All of that's going to be done by robots anyway in the next few years. So stop worrying about yeah. how your ad's going to look and just be yourself. Yeah, that's what I think, too. I mean, and I, I mean, an example of this, right, we saw today with Mashable. Yeah, totally. And, and so Mashable laid off its politics and its yeah. Uh, yeah. politics team and its editors um, and their CEO, Pete Cashmore, who I've actually met a few times, Matchable started off as a small tech blog, and it was Pete in his bedroom, kind of a thing, and it expanded out quickly because um, he's a you know he's a very savvy guy, and the whole tech blog scene just fell in on itself around two thousand eight, two thousand nine, um, for for a number of reasons. But some of that was the rise of social media and the the, the depressing rates of advertising. Um, so. Pete was smart enough to transition that into kind of a lifestyle type blog and Mashable was sort of competing with things like Buzzfeed, I guess, if you will. So, you know, so you had all these life hacker too. Yeah. Well, and that's part of the Gawker network, right? Right. Or Kinja. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And, and Gawker and life hacker start off as, I mean, Jenna Trapani started life hacker in her, in her bedroom in, in Brooklyn and she sold it to Gawker and, and Gawker became uh, Kinja. And it was this, you know, now this huge, media uh, conglomerate but uh yeah so pete today laid off a number of the staff after they got some funding from cnn i think yeah and yeah he had this quote later today we'll host an all-hands meeting to quote explain how media is changing and how we're positioning ourselves to stay ahead of the market but i wanted to give you a preview of, uh to help make sense of these changes i, I don't know if, if i was an employee of Matchable who just got laid off by surprise and I was doing a, a you know, filming gig in, in a hospital in Oklahoma and I got an email that said, hey, we're going to do an all hands meeting to explain how media is changing. Yeah. <laughs> Screw you. Um, but yeah, there's this real sense that things are changing and Matchable is going video first and they're going to produce. I mean, it sounds like what Vice does, to be yeah, honest. That's... And it sounds like Pete kind of wants to do like Vice 2.0 um i don't know and now vice has her own cable channel yeah i mean yeah it's interesting i mean <clears throat> i don't know but at the same at the same time a couple weeks ago uh, mtv just like massively expanded their politics group 
right? And hired some like big politics reporters to try to get into more kind of like quote unquote hard hitting news stuff. So it's interesting kind of how different people are reading the tea leaves, so to speak. Well, and there's this interesting conversation going on right now in, in the marketing world about TV as it is um, and how we're, you know, 10 years, five years ago, we thought the web was going to blow up TV and, you know, no one would have TV in their home and, and TV would be something that's completely obviated. Um, and, and traditional TV that's broadcast from CBS and, you know, Dan Rather type stuff. Yes, that's true. But we're moving to this new type of experience that's, you know, whether it's Snapchat or whether it's something like Facebook Live, um, we're moving into this new medium that is going to be video first. And we still haven't wrapped our heads around that yet. But a lot of what we're seeing, whether it's from Mashable or whether it's Vice or whether it's Facebook Live, is coming from these algorithmic discussions based on the data. People want TV, right. you know, and, and uh, people want mainstream media. There are people, like you said, there are people at the fringes like me who like watching obscure YouTube channels and, and we're completely fine with that. We don't have cable. We have one TV now. You know, most of my quote TV comes off of my computer screens. Um, and I'm completely fine with watching things I don't want to watch. And then, you know, you and I talk and you're, you say like, yeah, you know, basic means this. And I'm like, what? Cause I have no <laughs> anchor in, in sort of pop culture anymore. except for my job. And I look at how these trends are developing and I, I think we're going to be heading back to something like a, not mainstream media, but something akin to that. I mean, Facebook is, is, is more mainstream media, broadcast media than anything we've ever had. You know, we can talk about the golden age of Walter Cronkite talking right. to all Americans, but we have Facebook now. You know, and it reaches many, many more people than Walter Cronkite ever reached. And people willingly, you know, spend hours and hours a day. And that's, you know, the biggest app in the world on iPhone or iOS or, yeah. you know, Android or wherever you go. Well, too, I think there's this idea that things are like they're just going to keep changing, which on the one hand, yes, is true. But I, I don't know. I mean, we're notoriously bad at making predictions, right? And so, you know, for instance, people are doing this with churches and saying, oh, you know, in, in 10 years, like, there's not any big churches left. It's only going to be small churches. And I'm like, really? Like, well, we have no idea what kind of the economic situation is going to be like, what the global situation is going to be like, um, or anything. Like, how do we know that we're not going to have big churches in 10 years? Um, because, yeah, we see numbers kind of right now declining, but they might go back up. Right? We And... Yeah, so yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you there. I, I think the era of like the mega church is over in that sense. Um, there will be big churches, but I think most churches will be small, what we consider small to medium size, just like they were 50 years ago. Um, you know, you, you might have a couple of big downtown Baptist churches or Methodist yeah, churches yeah. or whatever. So, but... so maybe we're going to lose mega churches, but I'm talking like... That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. but I, and I'm just saying like big as in, I guess what we might call medium-sized churches, you know, between 500 and 2,000 members or something like that. No, I, th I think those are gone. I, I mean, they're, I don't, they're I don't not sustainable. So. I don't think so. Because you still, well, for one, you still need a place to come and politic. <laughs> right? Well, in, in so, some parts of the world. But, right. but you had the Garden Club for that, or you have Facebook for that. Now. Yeah, but it's not the same. It's just not the same. And you know that. It's not the same as being there in person, and particularly in the South, and being at church. And so, I think anything over, I think anything over 500 members, unless you're up to like 2000 members, I think anything over 500 has a very iffy situation because you've got to make it through the next 10 years where you've got a lot of building, you've got a lot of overhead, you probably have more staff than you need and you're, you're going to have to deal with this. And you've got a, a generation of people who are dying off who are, may or may not leave you their estates and their cars and their, you know might remember you and their estate planning, as we say. Um, and that's the generation that gave a lot of money 
to churches because that's what you do. Right. But, you know, people our age, proportionally and speaking, you know, generically, we don't typically give in the same fashion as, as you know, quote, the older yeah, generation. Yeah, but, that, but that's the thing, is, right, is the giving is different, but I don't know that the giving is less. Mm. I don't know. Like, There's I mean, a lot of big churches I work with, and the giving's a lot less. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And certainly in that regard, it is. But I mean, like, I don't know that, like, so people of my generation that, like, we do see that generally more and more people want to give to a specific thing and not to just like a general organization. Um, but so you have to shift how you get your money. But I don't think those people are giving any less of their money than say some people that are older than them. They're giving it in smaller increments and they're giving it probably um, what some people might think less rationally, but I think they're probably giving nearly as much money. But those churches don't have things like online giving and they don't have things like, you know, being able to give easily in ways that younger people are more comfortable with. I mean, relatively those are relatively small changes that have to be made, right? Right, yeah, totally. But I mean, again, those are me having to explain to a church that has two thousand members why you need online giving seems like a no brainer, but these are months and months and months long conversations and they're very hesitant to do this across the board. I mean, there's there are a few churches that say, Yeah, we want to do this. But most churches that we go into, we say, look, you know, we're, we're redoing your website. Why don't we throw this in? I'll, you know, I'll throw it in on top. It's no, you know, here's some fees, but here's how you can get around that and, and pay for that. And it will make you money um, or it'll add to your contributions, I should say. And the blowback is always no, because that's going to de- deter people from coming and giving on Sunday morning. We don't want to do that. We want people to you know put money into the plate. And I understand that sentiment, but I want to pull my hair out at the same time and say. They're just not going to give you money. Yeah, They're not going to give you money because <laughs> I don't want to put money into a plate that's being passed around and saying, hey, let's pass the hat because the preacher had a good sermon, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, but there, there are a lot of churches that don't even pass the plate anymore, you know, and they expect you to give online. Like some of those larger mega churches that we, the Sean Jesus Sean type churches that we we're talking about, which I, I mean, think I, I, I like yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, so we'll see, but I just think too, there are these kind of, you know, like sweeping generalization about what the future will and won't be like. And I just think we've been notoriously bad at making those predictions and, you know, what we see as what even might be trends in the short term, uh, don't always work out as like real, you know, actual trends in the long term that mean kind of the demise of certain things. Right. There's this idea that, like nobody goes to church anymore and nobody's a Christian anymore in this country. And you still have over 75% of people that identify as Christian. Yeah. But you, you look at South Carolina and we've had a 7% drop in people who identify themselves as white Christians since 2007. Yeah. You know, in 10 years, like that's a, I mean, we, we had a long way to fall because it was right. probably close to hundred percent. I can't remember the number, but still like that's a big drop in 10 years. Yeah, but I don't, well, one, I would say I don't, okay, I understand that. Yes, I don't know that that's a huge problem necessarily. I'm not saying it's a problem. Right. I'm saying to, to say that things aren't changing that rapidly. No, I no, think no, things- no. I think things are changing. I think what we think that means, I, we're just like kind of spitballing and throwing at the wall what we is actually going to look like in 10 years. Yeah, of course. So I, I of agree. Course. Things are definitely changing, but, but I guess this goes back to my point about like institutions and, I just don't think that there's this kind of overall lack of institutions that that's why people aren't going to church. I mean, like, and that's the thing that Rachel's doing in her book is kind of saying like, here's my and it's super complicated and complex and varied and everybody else's is too. And it, you know, oftentimes has to do with nothing that has to do with an institution and has to do with like actual people, right. And how they've treated you. Um, so I don't know. I just, I guess I just think like, let's kind of wait and see and not make these, you know, grand predictions about like, there's no, you know, there's no longer going to be this or that in the world in 10 years. Like, well, I mean, right. we did the same but thing I mean, with Gen X. Like, yeah. 
I mean, there were so many books yeah. about churches and Gen X. Right, and, I mean, so if you're thinking about kind of churches surviving and existing and like large and small and all that, I mean, if you look at it historically over the last, I don't know, 1700, 1800 years, like there have been ups and downs, but like generally churches have survived pretty well, you know? So. But when, when I see a, a church on Facebook who puts up a picture of their anniversary, you know, their, their 50th anniversary, their 100th anniversary, and the pastor's doing a selfie because he's a young person, and I'm saying a he because in this case, the one I saw is a he. I've seen a couple of these. Have you seen these where people, you know, people do the, the, the pastors do the selfies in front of the church? Which I have not. If I was in the congregation, I would get up and walk up to the pastor and, and kick him in the knee. <laughs> um, but I've seen more than one of these and, and they're popular because people do this crap. Uh, so anyway, it takes a selfie and not that it's bad, but the congregation behind him is old and white. Right. But and I've seen this a number of times. And this is a, a, a these are rather large, substantial churches, both in moderate and in conservative, at least Baptist right, life in the South. Right, but they're not going to make it in okay, 50 but years. That particular church may not, but that doesn't mean that something else might not pop a place, right? I mean, this is what happens. What's going to pop up? A Sean Jesus Sean church? I don't know. It might be that, or no. it might be a church that's not predominantly white, right? But that might still be no, it's the same thing. It it's the going to pop up when. when it's the same thing. The same thing that's going to pop up when all of these uh, large, regional or metropolitan newspapers collapsed, and it's smaller, more focused, less overhead things that are primar- primarily online. Whether it's you know someone doing a blog from their basement or <laughs> you know something like a an organization that's doing you know right, blogging to cover the news. Is, right. Okay. Um, but you say that, but then you also just said, "Oh, we're actually going back." to a time of more kind of like mass media stuff. Yes, we are. Right. That's what I'm saying. But so, as far as media goes, I don't think church is. So you don't think media. you don't think there's any relationship there. You think like, because like 10 years ago, right. Everybody thought the hyper local was going to be it. And it turned out to like not be a thing. Well, it is a thing, but it's not the thing that we thought it was going to be the thing. So hyper local is a thing in terms of the data and in terms of the insights that we get. Right, so everyone has a cell phone. Everyone wants to know how many steps they take. Everyone wants to. Oh know. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that, but it's not hyper local, as in like everybody thought every little you know neighborhood of every city was going to have its own like newspaper. We're not going to be reading the New York Times anymore. We're going to be reading the one for our borough and stuff like that. And we're not going to read like the Tallahassee Democrat. We're going to read the Midtown, whatever Republican. I don't. Know. But but we have. I mean, newspapers have collapsed. The New York Times is struggling, and I mean, yes, the Washington Post is trying to to transition into whatever because of Jeff Bezos, but. Uh, that's gone to Facebook. I mean, people use Facebook as their paper right, and right. for the most part, which that's pretty it, local. Which makes it, in my opinion, less local, right? That actually makes it a more global kind of phenomenon. But it's, it's self-selecting. Well, yeah. Certainly. You know, so like certainly. if you, that's what I mean. Right. So like you and I use Twitter as our news stream and we've self-selected our news sources. Yeah. Right. So it's not hyper-local in the sense that someone is providing news for us. We're providing right. news for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to know my health. I want to know, you know, what time my uh, lights came on this morning, I can look at my Hue app and see what time the lights turned on or, or I can tell Alexa to play this yeah. song at this time. Right. You know, so we flip that. And I think church is going to go the same way. I think we're going to go from, I mean, I I don't think it's a binary. I don't think right, there's, yeah. that there's not a connection to answer your question. I don't think it's a, you know, all or, or nothing. I think there's a scale there, as we've frequently said. And for me, that scale looks something like, churches that are very institutional and have squabbled over the color of the carpet in the past are going to be churches that struggle and churches that have to deal with shrinking membership, whatever membership means anymore. Should we call it membership? I mean, every church I know is having this conversation. Um, You know, what do we do with our gym? Do we just close it off? What do we do with that? You know, the annex or that wing that we bought that we're going to use as a, as a preschool. That we're clearly clearly not going to do now because that's not a money maker anymore. But that was a big money maker ten to fifteen well, it, years ago. It still is in some places. So let, yeah. let's just close it um, off. Yeah, a few places. Yeah, no, I, and I think you're right about that. That like one of the issues a lot of churches are going to are dealing with now are going to continue have to deal with is their size, like their actual physical size, um, and what else can they use their facilities for? 
Um, so I, I think I think that's an important aspect of it. But you know, I'm wondering if we're not going to see to some degree the pendulum swing back a little bit, like we are with TV. Right? It's no longer TVs are going to be gone. Now it's how do we get our content on your TV? Right, right. So and and if we're if you're self-selecting, you know, if if people can go out there and say I want to I want to subscribe to the Kardashian channel on my Roku or my Apple TV or my Netflix or you know whatever, they're able to to do that in, in that sense. So you have to market to them to get subscribed to. Yeah. It's not you buy cable and you pay this much money and here's all this stuff. And it doesn't matter if you like it or not, yeah, but, we're going to give it to you. Yeah. But you're also, okay. So there's that, that it's there, but there's also self-selecting going on then too. And which channels you choose to most people, they have 200 channels in their, you know, cable plan and they watch like seven of them. So it doesn't matter. Those channels are still getting paid though in that model. So like if, if you don't watch, or if you don't watch uh, Home yeah. Garden TV, whatever. Yeah, yeah but I th- those channels are still getting paid per subscriber, right? But I think we're I think we're going to shift back to a model like that to some degree, and that's what Apple's trying to do, right? Mm, mm, I don't think so, Thomas. I don't, I don't think that's what Apple's or anyone's trying to do. I think they are aware, and just as Netflix, just as Hulu, just as Google and Amazon, and all of these people working on this problem or this transition, they're aware that. Young people are growing up watching things like YouTube and YouTube calls them channels on purpose. Um, and they're being very self-selective, just like we've moved away from things like playlists on right. Spotify, even though we still have them. But, you know, people typically don't use playlists anymore. Um, and they get into these very narrow cast mindsets where, I mean, I, I got I do it where, you know, I like David Bowie and I like Willie Nelson and I like, you know, the Beatles and I don't really listen to anything outside of that until I say, okay, maybe I should go listen to this because I, I need to make sure I'm in the cultural context. But if I'm, if I'm an everyday person, I'm not going to go out there and really care about expanding my horizons. You know, I, I want to hear this and I'm going to listen to this now. And like you said, I'm only going to watch these seven channels or I'm, I'm only going to listen to these seven albums on Spotify, even though I'm paying $9 yeah, I, a month. Yeah. So I see what you're saying. I just think like it maybe looks, maybe it is actually, and maybe, you know, it looks a little bit more, but it seems a little bit exacerbated to me just because there are so many more more choices now. But I don't think that like we have that we are more self-selecting than we used to be. I think we have more tools to be self-selecting now. Um, and, so, and that's something yeah, to think totally, about. Totally, totally. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, but and that's not going to go away. But for Netflix, you pay your what? Because the advertising month, is much better. And you have all you have an insane amount of shows and movies 90% of what you're never 90% of what you're never going to watch. Right, but Netflix has an amazing algorithm to tell you what you should watch and for the most part it's pretty spot on, you know. So when I log into my profile, it looks completely different than Mariana's profile. <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. And sometimes she'll watch things on my profile and I'll log in and it's like you should watch Parenthood. And I'm like, "Why the hell did you use my Netflix profile to watch that woman?" You, know? you should watch Say Yes to the Dress. <sighs> um, I don't even know what that is. But you know, mine's all documentaries. And UFO stuff. And <laughs> as you said, documentaries. <laughs> Searching for King Arthur. Uh, so when, yes, and, and the tools are going to increasingly go that way because of the advertising involved. And because of things like, okay, well, if you're watching Netflix and you're logged into your Facebook, we can see the pages that you like. And we can know from Facebook's uh, graph and social graph who your friends are and what your friends have in common with you. And you know, we can actually look at your credit score based on who your friends are and based on what your friends say and based on the things you like. And we can kind of determine a, a pretty accurate profile of who you are, even if we don't know your credit score, even if we don't know what what demographic you are, because that's illegal. Um, but we can we can figure this out because computers are pretty freaking smart. And we're going to give you this and you're going to like it and you're really going to like it. And it's going to be good. And so and that's what's going to happen. With so church. what do you think that? Okay, that's my question. Is what do you? But how do you see that playing out? I see uh, those big white churches um, giving way to, again, if you're over a certain size, you're going to be fine. If you're something between five hundred to two thousand, it's going to be iffy in the next ten years. Um, and I think smaller, <laughs> hyper focused, not hyper local, hyper focused churches. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, location is good, but I think lo- location takes on locus takes on a new meaning with these tools that we have now. 
So even though you and I are separated by hundreds of miles, we have a pretty similar similar location in terms of who we are. Because I, I don't go outside and identify with the Columbia, South Carolina community very much. I mean, sometimes we'll go downtown and it's fun and yeah, Columbia. We're getting a minor league baseball team and I'll go, you know, watch a couple of games. But I don't consider Columbia my location, right? So I think we're getting to this point where location means less about geography, kind of in that Faulkner sense, right. and more about who we are. So where do you locate yourself on this spectrum of, of selections? You know, where what does your Netflix profile look like when you log in? And I think people that locate themselves in certain places are going to find other people like them. And that might be digitally. It might be in person. And there will be an in-person aspect to it, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. So we're definitely seeing that. But the, but I guess one of my things is the other thing you see with small churches is I mean, there's a big money problem there. I mean, right? I know that you know this. Um, and so... Yes, we're probably seeing the rise, you know, more and more, you know, kind of bivocational pastors and things like that. But that's also probably not a sustainable model. I don't think in the long run. So, so I guess that's my thing is that is that there are problems on the small end as well. There are on kind of the medium, big, large end that don't seem sustainable, right? I mean, it's not sustainable to pay a pastor ten thousand dollars to work, you know, what they say is part-time, but really takes up 30 hours of your week. But you're not going to, you might get a person to do that here and there and a few people, but they're not going to, all they're going to be doing is surviving if, right? So, so I think that's also not a sustainable model. And that's, that's part of the reason. I mean, it's part of what I think is one of the main reasons that we're going to still see some of these decent sized churches, because you have to have some degree of a critical mass to kind of sustain something financial. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm not saying every church over 500 members is going to yeah. go apocalypse. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I, I think as we move along 50 years from now, we're going to see a radically different version of American Christianity than we see, especially on, on the lower. Yeah. And I mean, like like things well, like could, yeah. Baptist Presbyterian yeah, I, type models. Right, right. And I could see something like a... Um, you know, like meet up, like the meetup model, like house church model, something like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're going back to a, Paul. You know, right. Kind of taking off and being a thing. But I also see that as being rather niche. Like, I, don't, I just don't think that's what there are plenty of people who want that. But that's not what most people want. I don't think. No, and, it's not. And, and maybe that's because it's not what they're used to. And that's fine. Um, so I can see that being a thing, but it's also going to. I don't think it's going to like take over. But but sense. the church is not the the locus or, or the central part of American culture anymore. And people were willing to pay their pastors a certain amount, you know, 20, 30, 40, 10 years ago. And those rates haven't changed. And they've gone down if you you know look at rates of inflation. Um, so when you right. talk about things like small, moderate, progressive churches having to pay their pastors uh, what they're worth, that's not going to happen. And there's only so many churches that are going to pay their pastors $100,000, $200,000, $300,000 a year. As wage deflation continues to affect what were once considered sort of professional jobs where, okay, if you're a pastor, you're going to get a, uh, you're going to have insurance. They're going to take care of you. They're going to pay for your meal on Sunday. You're going get, to get to play golf on Monday. You get a country club membership. You might get a parsonage. Um, yeah, as, you know, you might have to start small, but you'll work your way up. And, and after you know, 10, 20 years, you'll be fine and you'll be set. That's not the case anymore. And as more and more people realize that and they tell other people below them or younger than them, hey, you know, you might want to reconsider going to seminary because it kind of sucks now. <laughs> um, I, th I think that's going to have a real effect. And I think we're going to see that also leading uh, kind of a brain drain away from what was once considered moderate mainline Christianities. And that's going to go the way of, you know, Kind of like being a humanities professor. Yeah, but but of course, in some of these mainline denominations, you still have uh, set by the denomination or kind of the local instances of the denominations, like minimum salaries that have to be paid and things like that. Um, yeah, and, and I think that's wonderful. And pensions, yeah. you know, that some of them still have. So, st and that's the thing that kind of the institution gets you. That I don't think that like Baptists have. Right? They're notoriously independent, um, and that can be good, but it often tends toward not being so great and kind of how it actually plays out in people's lives, I think. Um, yeah. So <laughs> it, it, there's definitely a brain drain going on. Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, it's not going to get any better. All right. So we, um, the subject of our conversation shifted, but uh, ended on any more of a positive <laughs> note than our pre-show. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, how about this one? Just to end with um, Bernie Sanders finally unloaded on Hillary. That was good. And he said, she's not qualified. I, I have seen to that be president because yeah. she takes a lot of money. Yeah, I have seen that. There's been some back and forth. I thought that was pretty about, positive. <laughs> yeah, that's positive, right? Yeah, it's getting. Uh, it's funny, right? Uh, I guess his people are still saying like he's running an issue oriented campaign, but he's. I've heard less and less from the Sanders campaign that like uh, they're not doing negative. Like he said, he wasn't going to go negative, and everybody's like, "You need to go negative." And now he he has a number of instances. So, and they both struggled riding the subway, right? So terrible. <laughs> he was like, they were like, you know, the New York Daily News was like, how do you ride me? How do you ride the subway? They're like, well, like, what do you do? He's like, I don't know. You like put your coin in and you go. And they're like, oh, we haven't had coins in forever. Like your, like your token. You swipe <laughs> a card and like, ah, ha, 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 you're stupid. It's like, okay, whatever. And then Hillary, they're like making fun of her today because she was like swiping her card, right? She, clearly somebody had done her field research for her and gotten her her card. She was swiping her card. And it like didn't, and everybody's like, oh, she didn't know how to swipe her card. And I'm like, dude, going into my library, sometimes it takes five times to swipe my ID to get in. So, um, uh-huh. but yeah, clearly a show. She, she took one or two, one or two stops. Um, that was it, you know, but hey, it's. Was that the first time she's ever ridden the uh, New York subway? Except for when she was running no for Senate. But I mean, like, <laughs> like you thing. It's just so laughable. Well, then why did she play it? Right? She hasn't driven a car in thirty right, years, right. right? Everybody knows this. That's fine. Like that's just but, who you are. That's the no, life that you have to live. Being in the position. Yeah, no, because that was the thing. Even in nineteen ninety two, uh, Clinton versus Bush won, and there was a very famous question at one of the debates that sunk Bush. And they asked, I forgot who asked him this: How much does a, a gallon of milk cost at a grocery store right now? Right. And he had no idea. Yeah, well, she knows because she she does her research. Like she knows her stuff, right? That's that's not the problem for her. She can tell you all of that, but she doesn't live the same life that a lot of people live, and that's okay. Like Bernie Sanders doesn't either, and that's also okay. Like you know, we had this whole thing a couple. Of years ago, I want I, who was it? Who was the Republican candidate that came out and they made like a bunch of C's and stuff in college. And everybody was like, oh, that's great. It's just like me. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't want somebody who made a bunch of C's in college being the president. You know, like I don't want somebody. I mean, maybe just like me. Right. I obviously think very highly of myself. Um, but generally, like I don't want like just the regular, you know, every woman or every man, whatever. But you want someone who's in touch, someone who's not an elitist. That, and that you do want. But that necessarily has to when you're in that position. It necessarily has to come from information given to you and that you seek out. And it and, it, and I think in most cases it cannot. It just does not come from you living the same lifestyle because you yeah, can't. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I, don't, I just I think the expectation is funny that people have. And then I think them playing the game is also funny. So, you know, I just laugh at it. You know, right. Yeah. And that's the thing. They're trying to play the game, right? So you have someone like like the, the head of Google or Alphabet now. Um it's a uh, Sergey, Sergey Brin, uh, Larry Page is the other one, but Sergey still writes Bart every morning, and he doesn't shy away from it. And he gets on there, and you know, when one day he had Google Glass before Google Glass was released, and people were all like, "What is that?" You know, kind of thing. And uh, you know, he was seen riding the, the subway one morning with it, and the New York subway as well. And it, it's not. Unpossible <laughs> to quote Ralph Wiggum for those people to to interact with us, you know, plebes. Um, but yeah, when when if if you are an elitist, even if you don't think you're an elitist, like like Gwyneth Paltrow, don't talk about or don't blog about you know the the morning shake that you make that that costs like twelve hundred dollars yeah. every morning. Did you see that? <laughs> her, her diet shake that she drinks every morning cost like twelve hundred dollars to make. And, you know, she put it up on a blog and was like, you should all do this. It's great. And every time I, I fly in an airplane, I go sit in the sauna for 30 minutes afterwards to, you know, sweat out the germs. <laughs> and it's like, well, normal people right, don't right, do right. that. <laughs> you know, so stop, stop, stop. Just, you know, be you. All right, go, go do you, Gwyneth. Um, I don't know. That's my thing. So if, if you're going to try to be all, you know, 
I'm I'm a pure blooded American. Then then do it. I don't know. And I think Obama did well with that. Yeah. Especially during the campaign, I think he kind of he was able to drop cultural references, and still, you know, he and Michelle will frequently do that. And I think that's why some people don't like him because he's he's too normal. You know, <laughs> it's. He doesn't, he's not like an elite. Right. Yeah. Right. But it's, it's, yeah. Or Jimmy Carter, you know, like, well, put on a sweater. It's like, yeah, that that didn't do you any favors, Jimmy. Good advice. All right. All right. That was a good high note, I guess. (laughs) As high as we're going to get today. All right. (laughs) Uh, The Pope's big uh, family thing is coming out. I think 6 a.m. New York time, Eastern time tomorrow. Yeah, I think it's like, you know, noon Rome time. So I think it's 6 a.m. tomorrow, come out Eastern. Um, we're not going to be, or I'm not going to be waiting up for it. But uh, there's stuff about that. We'll talk about that probably next week. So I, th- I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be groundbreaking revolutionary. He's going to say, forget the Vatican. We're burning it down. We're going to start over. We're going back to small churches. I'll see you in Corinth. Yeah, I'm sure that's what he's going to say. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, we're gonna we're just gonna end it there. Uh, but thanks for listening. Probably not one of our best shows, but I thought it was good. Anyway. It was, actually was. I think it was a good conversation. I do. So um, I'm mainly talking about myself. So and I've just been a buzzkill all day. So I'm just gonna continue that. You need to go have a drink. Yeah. Don't worry about that. That will definitely happen. <laughs> Merle Haggard died yesterday. You have to drink in honor of Merle. I know. I know. I'll pour one out for Merle. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>